Oh, you're welcome, Neil. Thank you to Richard for playing the jam this morning. This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell, and we start this week by discussing the role profit-seeking development of Florida's natural environment played in the devastation wrought by Hurricane Ian. In a few minutes, we will consider the real damage done by Hurricane Ian, not only when it made landfall in Florida nearly a month ago, but the long-term damage that will linger far into Florida's future. The damage is exacerbated by the building boom under Governor Ron DeSantis and his Republican predecessors, who opened up vast swaths of nature to deep-pocketed developers. They drained swamps deemed useless, despite those same swamps being nature's protection against hurricanes like Ian. That vulnerability to so-called natural disasters, along with the response to the pandemic in Florida, have combined in ways that I have not heard connected before until reading the piece we'll be discussing today. Coming up, we will be speaking with C.D. Davidson Hires and Jeff Vandermeer, who co-wrote the Nation magazine article, Is Florida Becoming a Failed State? Large parts of Florida should be mangrove thickets, prickly swampland, and unforgiving marshy wilderness for our own survival. C.D. is a native Floridian who grew up on a 40-acre horse farm in North Florida. She works for the nonprofit Education Writers Association while also overseeing the Florida Student News Watch, an organization to mentor new journalists, which she founded. C.D. is also a programs coordinator and story producer with nonprofit government watchdog Florida Center for Government Accountability and serves as vice president of programming for the Society of Professional Journalists, Florida Chapter. You can follow CD on Twitter at Davidson Hires, that's H-I-E-R-S. Find out more about CD at her website, DavidsonHires.com. Jeff is author of the Nebula Award and Shirley Jackson Award-winning novel, Annihilation, which is set in the St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge. Jeff's environmental advocacy has included helping save Cypress Swamp in North Florida, and sponsoring research into the endangered frosted flatwood salamander. Called the Weird Thoreau by The New Yorker, Jeff frequently speaks about issues related to climate change and storytelling. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Vandermeer. You can find out more about Jeff at his website, jeffvandermeer.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, first, thanks for sitting in for producer Sebastian Elviper for the yeah, past no, few weeks. not a problem. As always, I enjoy doing the show with you, and I look forward to doing it again in the future. So what's new about you? Oh, not a whole lot today. I had a, quite a um, barricade to get through to get to the office today. Oh, it was a windy night last <laughs> night, and we have furni- lawn amazing. furniture outside the back door, was, which is it problematic. Looked, it looked like a weird art project. Oh, did it? was like... I was quite surprised. It was an that, installation. You yeah, thought? I had a lot. I had to really get the the umbrellas. Like we're all jammed into the window 
grates and uh, fence posts and stuff. It was amazing. So as somebody who works at the Muse- Museum of Contemporary Art, do you think it could have been <laughs> part of an exhibition there? Uh, maybe an outsider one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. A naive artist show. So what's new by me is I had a, a lovely weekend relaxing with family, celebrating birthdays, and Christmas, because some family members will not get vaccinated. This means if we want to get together, we must be outdoors for everybody's safety and health. And as it will soon be too cold here in Illinois to be outside, we have to celebrate Christmas early. Whatever. We had a great time, great food. We had a fantastic place to stay, the coach house to a mansion where a Lincoln-Douglas debate actually took place in its backyard. It's in a. It's also in a historic, you know, neighborhood of a very small city. Uh, fantastic place to look at 19th-century homes. Some are in disrepair, and others drastically altered from their original design. So, trying to figure out what they look like originally is a fun game of architectural forensics. If you're into that kind of thing, and I am. In other words, uh, a great place to walk around, especially late at night. So, despite the whole anti-vax thing forcing us to celebrate Christmas in October for three years running. I actually had a really good weekend. Uh, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, here in the United States, we have an upcoming election on the Tuesday, November 8th. Whether you are in the States or not, wherever you are, whenever your next election is, what do you fear as its worst possible outcome? So it doesn't matter if you're in the States, it doesn't matter if it's a county election, a referendum, if uh, wherever you happen to be or whenever your election is coming up, just tell us what's the thing you are afraid of the most when it comes to the next election. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell, as always, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell remember with you without you we got we got nothing so thanks to all of you who have shown your support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio or you can email me chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin and the moment of truth Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Richard has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is the hair of the dog, which of course was one of the very first hangover cures ever featured on This is Hell back in 1996. However, we did not know that there was actually a recipe for a hair of the dog cocktail, which was recently featured at wineenthusiast.com. Just to make sure that everybody knows, I don't normally go to wineenthusiast.com. <laughs> Another website for it suggested I check this out. Wine Enthusiast regular contributor Vicki Denig writes, There are quite a few drinks considered by many to be hair of the dog cocktails, including mimosas, micheladas, Bloody Mary cocktails, and even simple light beers. I mean... Isn't any alcoholic drink a hair of the dog? Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> we, however, have settled on a creamy number that marries fiery whiskey and cooling half and half, plus a hit of hit 
a hint of honey to bring it all together. Think of it as the unholy marriage of an ice-cold glass of milk for breakfast with and the remains of last night's nightcap. That sounds disgusting. You will need two ounces whiskey, one and a half ounces half and half, or substitute three ounces of whole milk and a teaspoon of honey. Didn't someone say a teaspoon of honey makes it a... Uh, the medicine go down. That's right. Fill a cocktail shaker with <laughs> ice and add all ingredients. Shake and strain into a, into a rocks or tulip Two glass. Points. No garnish necessary. That makes this week's hangover cure a hair of a dog recipe, a hair of a dog cocktail recipe made from two ounce... Two ounces whiskey, one and a half ounces of half and half, or substitute three ounces of whole milk and a teaspoon of honey shaken up and poured over ice. I'm going to try that at some point. That sounds like, uh, unfortunately, I just think it would make you sick, and I think that's the point of Hair of the Dog, right? To make you sick so you're not hungover anymore. This is how we stream live Monday through Wednesday at 10 in the morning Chicago time and our podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in abbreviated one-hour versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, and on CKUW-FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the University of Winnipeg. We are also airing twice every week on Lumpen Radio on Chicago's South Side at lumpenradio.com and at WLPN-FM. And thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. If you would like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public radio station or a community radio station or an online station like Beware The Radio, contact your local station or favorite internet radio site and tell them why you enjoy listening to This Is Hell and why you want to hear it as part of, hear it carried within your community, whether that community is virtual or real. You can email your constructive and destructive criticism, your guest or topic suggestions, or anything you'd like to share to chuck at thisishell.com. Message us via Facebook or tweet at us at This Is Hell Radio. And if you do, we will likely read it on air. If we have your suggested guest or topic on the show, we will thank you personally during our, that conversation. We got an email from Patrick in Seattle who writes, Dear Chuck, a recent letter you read on the show about Carter Administration National Security Director Zbigniew Brzezinski and the road to 9-11 reminded me that I've been wanting to send you a certain guest recommendation for quite some time. Aaron Good, author of the recently published book American Exception, Empire and the Deep Space, or Deep State, sorry, and a host of uh, podcasts of the same name. You should have him on your show. He's extremely well informed on everything from the Iran coup d'etat to 9-11 and their deep historical roots, which he uses to analyze how power works in America from a principled leftist perspective. Second, I wanted to thank you for your recent and past monologues on being in a committed, unmarried relationship. I've been in a similar relationship for the past 12 years, and despite many arguments with, uh, from friends in the legal, financial, and about the legal, financial, and social benefits of getting married, we find unwed life suits us best and appreciate your articulation of some of the reasons. We also don't like the word, the terms partner or boyfriend or girlfriend, and often use special lady friend and special man friend to which strangers react with the right amount of laughter and confusion. Thanks for such a great show and hope your coming week off is productive but also restful. 
we'll be listening, uh, we'll be visiting some of our other unwed friends in Chicago in a couple of weeks and hoping to make a stop at Carrie's Lounge. Patrick in Seattle. So thank you, Patrick in Seattle. And a little context for people who are tuning in for the first time and might be thinking we're some wacky conspiracy theory show. What Patrick in, uh, uh, in Seattle was referring to is an email we got last week from Martin F. in Chicago, which was in reference to a monthly review piece, Revelations of Carter's former advisor, Yes, the CIA entered Afghanistan before the Russians. An interview from the year 2000 conducted by a past guest on our show, the historian David Gibbs. And it Brzezinski is asked shortly before 9-11 if he regrets supporting the Mujahideen in their insurgency against the Soviet-backed Soviet or Afghan government. Remember, 9-11 had not yet happened, but the Taliban and al-Qaeda, which was operating out of Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, were already understood as a national security threat to the United States. When asked if he regretted helping the Mujahideen and the Taliban, Brzezinski tells David Gibbs, regret what? That secret operation was an excellent idea. It had the effect of drawing the Russians into the Afghan trap, and you want me to regret it? The day that the Soviets officially crossed the border, I wrote to President Jimmy Carter, essentially... We now have the opportunity of giving to the USSR its Vietnam War. Indeed, for almost 10 years, Moscow had to carry on a war that was unsustainable for the regime, a conflict that brought about the demoralization and finally the breakup of the Soviet Empire. The point of Martin from Chicago's email was to ask if we had ever heard that before, and we explained that we had. We were even talking about it when that interview originally took place back in 2000. So Patrick from Seattle suggested we speak with Aaron Good, author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep Space, Deep State. I keep saying Deep Space, Deep State, which is also the name of Aaron's podcast. For those of you who are freaked out like I am by Deep State because of Trump's appropriation of the term, the publisher's webpage for American Exception says, the term Deep State was badly misappropriated during the Trump era. In the simplest sense, it herein refers to all those institutions that collectively exercise undemocratic power over state and society. To trace how we arrived at that point, the book American Exception explores various deep state institutions in history-making interventions. Key institutions involve the relationships between the overworld of the corporate rich, the underworld of organized crime, and the national security actors that mediate between them. History-making interventions include the toppling of foreign governments, the launching of aggressive wars, and the political assassinations of the 1960s. This book concludes by assessing the prospects for a revival in U.S. democracy. So thanks for the guest suggestion, Patrick, in Seattle, and the kind words about my take on being in a committed and unmarried relationship. Patrick, when you are here in town, get in touch with us, because it would be great to hang out and have a beer or three. If you are in town and want to hang out in the beer garden, to the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Or if you want to follow up on an earlier email read here on air or suggest a guest, email us at chuckatthisishell.com. We'll likely read your request and suggestion and all your thoughts on air. You can also DM us via Twitter and message us via Facebook. Still to come, C.D. Davidson hires and Jeff Vandermeer will ask, is Florida becoming a failed state? Richard will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, here in the U.S., we have an upcoming election on Tuesday, November 8th. Whether you are in the States or not, wherever you are, whenever your next election is, what do you fear as its worst possible outcome? 
We'll tell you more about what happened behind the paywall on Patreon during our Patreon podcast this week. And we'll share with you who our upcoming guests will be on this week's show. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. And the people of Florida are understandably still grieving for what they lost nearly a month ago in the wake of Hurricane Ian. Natural disasters regularly hit Florida's fragile environment. And when you combine them with the unnatural disaster of overdevelopment, the destruction gets far worse, as does the toll in and on human lives. Here to give us their perspective on the most recent hurricane to waylay Florida's are two Floridians, C.D. Davidson Hires and Jeff Vandermeer, wrote the Nation article, Is Florida Becoming a Failed State? C.D., welcome to This Is Hell. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And Jeff, welcome to This Is Hell as well. Hi, thanks very much for having me too. Uh, CD, let's start with you. Uh, the, the article that you co-wrote uh, starts with this wonderful line, Florida will try to kill you. I think that's on the license plates now, which is really <laughs> So it, you start, Florida will try to kill you. This is the Florida rule, and it governs one of the most capricious landscapes on earth. Misunderstand the environment at your peril. As we were reminded by Hurricane Ian this past month, parts of our unique paradise lie in ruin, and we will spend months, if not years, trying to process the experience. C.D., why is Florida given to sudden and unable to be explained changes? Is it just simply the result of where it is located, a peninsula sticking out between the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean? Does, does Florida have sudden changes more than anything because of its simple natural geography? Oh, that's such a good question. And I appreciate you reading out the beginning of our piece. Um, Jeff and I co-wrote this piece, and not only did we uh, write equally into it, we we both came at it with a certain perspective that just molded so well together. To answer your question, Florida, I mean, I'm a native Floridian, so it's a little hard to get some perspective on my state because it has always been this way and always will be. But to answer your question a little bit more thoroughly, I think it's the the geographic location of the state as well as the amount of biodiversity that we have here. Um, Florida is very much divided into its region its regions, um, both socially as well as geographically. And I'm from North Florida, which is known to be the swampier part of our state. It's not the part of Florida that you think about when you think about beaches and and palm trees. That's definitely more South Florida. Uh, but Florida is such a capricious landscape because we have all these disparate parts that are working together in how we kind of artificially conceive of it within its state boundaries. And, you know, when you live at a beach, you don't understand the importance and the beauty of a swamp and a little bit vice versa. I'm going to I'm going to reflect my bias here. I grew up in and around swamps, so going to a beach kind of perplexes me. Uh, but I think that's the beauty of our state is how much all of it is taking care of itself all at once. Jeff, uh, you and CD also write that throughout the Florida counties where floodwaters consumed entire cities, emergency crews broke into submerged cars to reach people inside while the Coast Guard rescued others from rooftops. People kayaked down their main streets and swam in floodwaters through the downstairs of their houses. The majority of these homes were not covered by uh, flood insurance, and in several places, the flooding 
has not yet subsided. So, Jeff, why is there such a dearth of home insurance in Florida? Here in Illinois, homeowners insurance isn't required by law, but mortgage companies will most likely require it in order to get a loan. So if you want to get a loan to buy a home, you better have home insurance here in Chicago or in Illinois. Why are mortgage companies not requiring home insurance on homes in Florida where they are far more vulnerable, far more susceptible to being destroyed by extreme weather events like hurricanes, especially in light of the effects of climate change on making storm, storms more powerful. Why are these homes not being insured? Yeah, it's a very good uh, question. And we've had emergency sessions of the state legislature, I believe, to try to address insurance problems that seem to be exacerbated by politics and and politicians, and and actually CD may have a better grasp on this question, but it's also true that there are a lot of people who are eligible for this insurance who didn't have it. So that's, I think, another another question. CD, do you have any insight on that? It's a it's a long it's a long answer to answer. Um, But part of it, too, is when you look at flood versus wind. Uh, insurance and the after effects of of a hurricane, which I've covered several times here in North Florida as well, um, is the difficulty for homeowners to prove exactly what destroyed their property or destroyed their home. And if you can imagine that, trying to argue in the midst of a hurricane, was it the flooding that that took you out or was it the wind that took you out? Um, is just a a brutal nightmare. But I think part of the answer too goes in the question itself, which is we know how dangerous it is to live here, yet we continue to ignore it. So taking on the risk of insurance by insurance companies is, is, is a game that nobody wants to be playing. Well, so Jeff, you and uh, CD also uh, co-write that large parts of the state should always be mangrove thickets, prickly swampland, and unforgiving marshy wilderness for our own survival. Well, Jeff, if Florida needs relatively untouched nature for its own survival, that would suggest development threatens that survival. Jeff, how how, how much is so-called development, which is a horrible term to begin with anyway, but how much is so-called development restrained or limited in Florida, or is it completely not? Yeah, it's not limited at all at this point. Um, You you have basically an oligarchy in place in in state government that, 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 you know, feeds off of political contributions from huge developers. And so you you have a a trend also of these developers being from out of state, not having as much of an understanding of the landscape that they're developing. But basically what happened is in 2011, Rick Scott, the the governor then, disbanded the Florida uh, Department of Community Affairs, basically, which was something that was supposed to keep developers in check and to balance the needs of like tourism even, you know, because tourism depends on, on our nature to some degree. Uh, and replace it with this Department of Economic Opportunity that basically created a grid for Florida where every single part of Florida was, you know, you know, cited for some kind of economic development or opportunity, which which often was an Orwellian way of saying we're just going to clear cut everything, uh, you know. And and so uh, you see this uh, in the effects of hurricanes. I think, for example, you know, who knew, you know, when, when we hear all the the stuff about the coast. Who knew that the the orange groves were going to be decimated, and then that that's part of it right there is that you have the decimation on the coast, but those natural things like mangroves and and not building on barrier islands, that's the buffer for the interior as well. And when you don't have that, it doesn't matter that some of the there are a couple of communities that were built better and the houses survived, 
it still is a situation where when you build that much, you wind up with all kinds of destruction elsewhere. Uh, and so really what, what's happened is if we even just had a modicum of rational, normal regulation, even though we have kind of a capitalism and overdrive situation here, uh, you would definitely have much, much more balanced, better quality of life, better long-term prospects. We wouldn't have a, a aquifer that's so poisoned. Uh, you know, all of these things are affected by the fact that there's really no regulation at all at this point. So, CD, Jeff was just saying how the economy is too, mm-hmm. you know, in Florida, it depends on tourism. Part of that mm-hmm. tourism is driven by the desire to see untouched nature. How much mm-hmm. does Florida depend upon development for its economic survival? Does it need to do this kind of development that endangers the state of Florida when it comes to hurricanes like Hurricane Ian for its economic survival? Mm-hmm. That's such a uh, that's such a good question in the way that it is articulated as well. But I would go back to um, what you noticed earlier, just in the word development. Um, it's such a broad, a broad term to apply anywhere. Um, just in that when we talk about developing Florida, we have this kind of un, what seems to be ungoverned or un, un, you know, unarticulated um, relationship with the environment here, which is that we don't need to, some some cities are born of nothing in this in this state. Some cities have been, built up on sand. I mean, you drive down the coast and you see these these massive condo buildings that are just waiting to be to be torn apart. And that kind of development is never going to succeed in Florida if the measure of success is that it'll be here for through a hurricane. Um, But when we think about development, if we can start thinking about actually paying attention to where we live and working with it, then yeah, I think that development could be completely sustainable. But we have to we have to let nature come back as part of that and not be disgusted by by mangrove swamps, which actually smell very strongly, but are our natural barrier to storm surge, for one example, or or be frightened of swamps with their millions of mosquitoes and and alligators uh, because they they are they are you know they absorb salt water, they clean our waters for us, things like that. The way that we interact with the land around us can be a sustainable form of development. Well, and also, you know, I mean, alligators are basically scaly basset hounds if you're you're native to Florida or have been here a while. <laughs> um, but the other thing I would say is that this is also on like a really basic level. Like here in North Florida, you see a lot, we have a lot of ravines. We actually are fairly hilly. We have this aquifer that's all connected. And you see a lot of times developers not just clear cutting, but they're also taking out the natural water feeder features that mitigate erosion and flooding mm-hmm. and replacing them with like stormwater ponds that are proven not to be effective and not effective for like filtering out pollutants, which the natural water features do. So on a very basic level, beyond hurricanes, beyond development on the coast, we're doing these things that are just undoing systems that already do the work for us. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 it's costing us billions of dollars, you know, <laughs> over time too. 
So, so Jeff, you mentioned uh, development on the Barrier Islands earlier, and UNCD write that in the area around Fort Myers, breaking the Florida rule, that is, again, Florida will try to kill you, came with a heavy cost. People living on remote Barrier Islands, ribbons of ever-changing sand that lie parallel to the coast, were reminded of their tenuous connection to the mainland with the collapse of the Sanibel Causeway. Just eight months ago, residents were concerned about new pavilions, picnic areas, and parking on the causeway that might interfere with windsurfing activities. A year earlier, commissioners uh, approved a 50-condo development next to the causeway. Now the causeway lies broken in five places, cutting off access to emergency services and essential supplies. So, Jeff, how aware were, and this is kind of a bigger uh, issue question, not Uh just about the barrier islands, but how aware were those who were suggesting and implementing these expansions of the causeway that it was vulnerable to destruction mm-hmm. from storms. Again, especially in light of climate change, causing a greater likelihood that tropical storms and hurricanes are increasingly stronger. How aware were they that this would be endangered by storms? Yeah, it's a good question. At first, I want to actually give CD a shout out because I couldn't describe Barrier Islands to save my life, and she came up with ribbons of sand. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, the uh, I don't know why I couldn't. It's one of those things of being like too close to something. But um, you know, it's funny because if you look at part of those barrier islands, there is a little more set aside for nature than you find in some other areas, but it still wasn't enough. So even like something that seemed to probably to some of the residents like, oh, we have this natural area set aside here. So that's somehow going to offset the problems we're going to encounter if there's a disaster like this. It doesn't really work that way. So there may be a little bit of... Um, what you might call horse trading in, in terms of the mental attitude towards it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also the fact that, you know, you even after a disaster like this, you immediately see things like like uh, people who are rebuilding don't have to necessarily tell a protective a prospective home buyer that their house that they're buying was half destroyed in a hurricane a year ago. Um, there's also this invisible aspect, which is to say we see the hurricane hit, we see all the devastation from it, and what we don't see is the thing we talked about in the article is that almost certainly, and it happened, you're going to have chemicals that, that, that occur because of built environments being destroyed that are, that are out there in the environment, in the flooding, hurting people. You know, you're going to have the sediment. I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but there's this vast, almost oil spill-like effect off the coast there, even now, mm-hmm. of the withdrawal of the storm surge. And that's, part of that is toxic. That's going to lead to another die-off of things like marine life which will affect things like fishing. But I guess what I'm saying is in your everyday life, maybe you forget um, and then you're, you're allowed to forget because your political leaders don't remind you, they don't take the precautions, they don't mm-hmm. think about it. Uh, your institutions, your systems, you know, because we have a real problem with systems being illogical in Florida after three Republican governors. Um, so it's a good question. You know, it's something that, that maybe, there may be a different answer for different, different groups of people in that area. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think also everyone wants to live in what they see as paradise. And, and maybe that's another reason why it's kind of, you know, deferred in terms of thinking about disaster. I want to get back to that notion of invisibility in a little bit. But, uh, C.D., uh, you and Jeff also write that terms like carnage and total destruction, common in news coverage, tend to be used to describe property in the aftermath of storms, ignoring both human lives and, in Florida, the fragile landscape on which those buildings stood. So, C.D., how does news coverage using terms like carnage and total destruction ignore human lives 
in Florida's fragile landscape. After all, carnage means killing many people, and 129 at least have died so far from Ian in Florida. There's mm-hmm. at least you know $60 billion, supposedly, in property damages, which may not be total destruction, but it is a significant amount of damage. So how do those terms fall short and ignore human lives in Florida's fragility? Mm, I really appreciate you asking that question. And I come at this from a from a local journalism perspective. I worked for four years in Tallahassee with a Tallahassee Democrat, a local newspaper there. And it covered education and the onset and onslaught of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I tell you that because the coverage of this hurricane, every journalist who's writing about this, you know, every hometown journalist who's writing about this has been through the same years that I have and we're exhausted. Um, and when you when you have a hurricane slam into an area, all of a sudden trauma becomes real, uh, like visceral. And and working through the pandemic, you you saw the anxieties of the people around you. You heard about people dying, and then you lost people who were close to you as well. But the immediacy of the hurricane itself is just unparalleled. But because it's so acute it also will fade. So that's the setup to my answer for you, which is these words are warranted, but it's also when you first are covering a hurricane, you are just surrounded by broken buildings. And what is what is also so exhausting or so wearisome at this point is that we have lost what probably more than 82,000 Floridians to date from COVID-19 alone. And the um, the words are not the words are not the same. Uh, we're not still writing about the carnage of the pandemic every single day, but we're writing about carnage when we're standing in the middle of a of a destroyed street. And these things are going to have long term effects on our psyche. Uh, but the the parallel between COVID and between the immediacy of the hurricane is just. Uh, falling short because you cannot keep writing about the same thing over and over and over with the same kind of gravitas. And so, yes, you're right. These words are warranted. Um, but at the same time, like we're not, you know, still, still finding the the family members that are dying from, from COVID to put those on the headlines as well. And so I hope that answers your question. But uh, It does, but it, uh, just, it makes me think that the way in which the media approaches, especially TV news media, uh, the mm. way in which they approach uh, a disaster CD is that they almost value property loss more than they value the loss of hum- in human lives. And I Property know- loss, yes. Uh, well... <laughs> TV news um, is is a different medium altogether than than uh, radio and print, which is you know a very intelligent observation. But it's visual, and property loss is the most visual um, immediate that you can show, and it's also what you can show on on national television. You're not you're going to be very careful about about showing bodies, actual bodies on national television. So it becomes this metaphor, this stand in for what we're facing. But at the same time, it desensitizes the viewer to the realities of this because a viewer is going to appreciate lost family pictures or lost family homes, but only in this um, kind of mitigated empathy kind of way. And then you turn the channel and you move on. 
So, Jeff, you know, uh, the typical establishment TV news coverage of disasters caused by extreme weather events is usually reporting on the spectacle of the weather event itself, followed by the damage done, often to property, then the human tragedy of homes destroyed and lives lost. Next is the recovery and those who helped being portrayed as heroes. And finally, something on the community's resilience, which is a specific word that is nearly always used when it comes to these disasters. And within a week, maybe two, the news media moves on, never to return and follow up on any progress being made in rebuilding or even a decision by locals not to rebuild. So, Jeff, what do you think is missing from the t- from TV news? I mean, it happens in other platforms, but especially it happens on TV yeah. news. What is missing from TV news playbook when it uses the story trajectory of spectacle, tragedy, recovery, resilience mm. when covering extreme weather events like the one you recently experienced with Hurricane Ian? Yeah, I mean, I think that up here in North Florida, we experience what that 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 means in terms of that cycle by the very slowness of recovery. Like you immediately have very almost upbeat articles, chipper articles about rebuilding resilience, you know, individual her- heroism, et cetera, et cetera, that belie the way that things are going to lie in ruins for a long time. Now, they may not in, in Southwest Florida as much because it's a richer area, but in North Florida after Hurricane Michael, there's an article in the New York Times or LA Times, I think it is, about uh, a small town, uh, Mexico City or Me- no, Mexico Shores, uh, basically rebuilding now, four years later, beginning to rebuild and in a, in a very kind of sickeningly gentrified way uh, that's going to transform it forever. So, you know, there's, there's that aspect of the news cycle wanting to kind of like show you a narrative that everything is not only going to be okay, but it's going to be the same as, as it, is, it was before, even though I think this time around there have been more and better articles about um, the fact it's not, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, that's what one thing we wanted to show, I think by, by also referring to the prior hurricane, Michael is to just show how long it can take to rebuild. But then I also equate it to almost the same thing as when you have somebody, a friend or a family member, uh, who loses someone, you go to the funeral, you console the, the grieving relatives, uh, but then you have to have a reminder to check on them a few months later because the real problem mm-hmm. is a few months later when no one is paying any attention and they're still grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the same thing here, only it takes place over years. I mean, let's remember that two people committed suicide from seeing the the devastation right after the hurricane hit. So mm-hmm. you have issues of PTSD, you have issues uh, connected to physical ailments due to all the chemicals people have been exposed to, even in an area like this that was not a heavy industrial area. So that's something to really kind of like give you pause is, is that, you know, and that becomes another invisible thing, especially, or, or a spread out over time and space thing uh, that is, I know, hard for, for journalists to cover, and especially, you know, TV journalists who are going on to the next thing. But, but we do need to break that cycle you're talking about in the news. Um, and our article, I think, tried to do that a little bit by taking a kind of unusual structure, too, um, and not just going for an extremely, like, one potent through line, but trying to examine the, the entirety of, of the picture. And we also have to remember that even, you know, uh, Katrina made landfall in New Orleans in 2004, and yeah. New Orleans has not rebuilt. And there's mm-hmm. not, there's not much news coverage of going back to the neighborhoods what that were destroyed that have been abandoned or the ones that were destroyed and then replaced by a whole bunch of gentrified homes that are owned by people who don't even live in the state or the area, and they're taking the profits out yeah. of New Orleans that needs they the profits that they need for their economy to survive. Mm-hmm. 
So we're speaking with C.D. Davidson-Hires and Jeff Vandermeer, who co-wrote the Nation article, Is Florida Becoming a Failed State? On that invisibility, and we'll get back to Hurricane Michael, too, because that's a really interesting uh, comparison. Uh, in uh, Jeff, in uh, on invisibility, you and uh, C.D. write that the day after Hurricane Ian barreled ashore, public officials confirmed 12 deaths. As of this writing, the Florida toll stands at 119. The most recent one I've seen is 129. Mm-hmm. Many by drowning, others from trying to put up tarps to cover roofs, and at least three whose oxygen tanks failed with the electricity outage, and two who committed suicide, as you were saying, after seeing the extent of the damage. You quote a resident telling the Miami Herald, we've seen bodies everywhere, and you add that people in the area need basics like food and water and medicine to be delivered along supply lines made increasingly unreliable by the climate crisis. Long-term casualties from early mortality caused by PTSD and exposure to sewage and other contaminants in the water may be invisible or hard to quantify in the years to come. Jeff, when it comes to preparation for future similar events and how to respond to them when they do happen, what is the impact of that invisibility, that difficulty to quantify the human toll caused by Hurricane Ian? Does that invisibility and inability to quantify lead to people believing that disasters like Ian do not take a toll on the people as much as they do, especially deprioritizing preparedness and response to disaster. Yeah, I think uh, definitely, I think it doesn't help when you have um, confusion at the the state or the county level. Um, I think it's Lee County that was late in issuing an evacuation order. um, And by that time, most of the gas was gone uh, in terms of people trying to refuel before they, they left. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, there's also that overlay, um, that you have to be extra careful in these situations. Um, and you have to be extremely aware, uh, of what the data, data means. Um, so there's that, I think also just simply, it's almost like things like climate crisis too, which is unevenly distributed you know it, it hits one way one place uh, temporarily as colder temperatures and so it's confusing to people uh and, and so you have this manifestation but but it, again it goes back to news cycles that may not be prepared to carry the, the news forward in the way they would in something like a war um and so you don't see all the costs that come down the line that we articulated uh, in the article and there may be a lot more that we didn't even cover um, I know CD has been kind of keeping track of some of the, the more current stuff as well. Uh, CD, I, I just want to – the one thing I, kept, I keep thinking about is how ill-prepared it seems like Florida is when it comes to these disasters. But mm-hmm. CD, is it even possible – to be prepared to evacuate in the face of an impending extreme weather event, or are they so unpredictable and prepar- is, that makes it that preparation impossible? It, how how much can you be prepared for these kind of natural disasters? I, I would love to blame the government because that would make us think that these are a matter of political choices and that therefore mm-hmm. they can be fixed. But to what degree can that be fixed? To what degree can you be prepared for these kind of natural disasters? That's an incredibly important question, and I would invite you to ask it at every county and state meeting in Florida. Um, I think the answer is it lies actually somewhere in between. As as much as I would love to be a, a you know draw to one side of the spectrum on this, um, that's just grief at this point. It's it's solidly in the middle. I think that 
when moving to Florida, because remember, Florida has a huge retirement population. This is paradise of our, or one of the paradises of our nation that that retirees from up north flock to. Um, but I think that with retiring here needs to be a serious uh, a serious discussion about the risk. You have people move here on their on their savings, and now it's gone. Um, and so I think that. On the front end, there needs to be there can be preemptive measures about warning people about the risk of coming here, which would undermine the uh, the retirement itself. Um, But on the back end, no, evacuating millions of people uh, within hours will never happen. So the preparation does need to be in advance. And the difficulty with with articulating that or planning for that is that hurricanes of this magnitude don't hit at the same time every year. And they're so difficult to prepare. I mean, that's part of, I don't think we this made it into our article, Jeff, but we talked about it a lot, was the the guilt of living in, you know, the Florida guilt that comes with the relief of not being hit by a hurricane, but then the grief of watching your neighbors uh, deal with it. Because at some point, everyone in Florida who has lived here for more than more than a few years has had to deal with some uh, either direct or periphery aspect of one of these natural disasters. Um, and I think that it's an entire systems shift that has to happen and is happening in some places and is really not in others. Um, just in the visual aspect of building either completely at sea level or a little bit below sea level and then stripping what you find ugly in the natural environment around you that was designed, is designed to live there for a reason. Uh, so I hope that answers your question, but it's it's this all-encompassing, just this is the reality that we live with. We have to pay attention to it. We cannot live in denial. Jeff, you and CD also write that already the New York Times writes about insurance rates and the obstacles to rebuilding exactly where Hurricane Ian demonstrated the ability of a storm to wipe a place clean of human habitation. The same area will experience at least a foot of sea level rise by 2070. So, Jeff, is the Times or anyone in the media reporting on what would seem like the futility of rebuilding in an area that is not only subject to natural disasters like hurricanes and today's hurricanes that are juiced up on climate change, but sea levels rising a foot in less than 50 years? Do they report on the futility of it all or is it not futile as it's not pointless or useless because in rebuilding money is made? (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's I guess it's not futile if you if you really are really about the short term in such a to such an extent you really don't care about anyone in the future. Um, the I I really do believe that there has to be a withdrawal uh, from some of these areas, and the the problem with that is that given the systems that we have that are so broken in some ways, uh, you know that withdrawal is going to hurt the poor disproportionately, right? So that's the only problem is that under the systems we have, that withdrawal would probably be extremely disproportionate in terms of wealth inequality and everything else. But but it kind of, it has to happen. But we also have to protect the people who are most vulnerable in doing it. And, you know, th- there have definitely been more articles this time. I've been heartened to see that there have been more articles about this question and bringing this question up. But at the same time, and I think CD will attest to this too, I think every hurricane over the last 10 years, there's been some 
editorial or question about should we rebuild or not, but then we go ahead and rebuild anyway. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, also, you know, the, the anecdote in there about, you know, maybe you sit, you're sitting in Miami and you're, you're talking to someone and, and they say, oh, they're building more condos there, even though it floods every week, people just ignore the flooding. It's absolutely true. That's something that happened to me in Miami talking to a relative where I just could not believe that they were still building. And so there, there's also this, 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 this kind of like, almost like it, it happens automatically. I mean, I don't know how, CD, how you feel about it, but it, it's almost like beyond governance uh, in some strange way. I think that, you know, if, if the, and I know your question is, is a little bit more rhetorical, but I think that if the, if the measure of success is money is made, then by all means. Uh, but if the measure of success is quality of life, we have to we have to uh, reconceive of Florida and withdrawal may be the answer. And yes, that'll put that'll um, that'll affect uh, every level of of society. And and the more affluent are the ones who can withdraw faster. But I think too is is reinjecting or re reprioritizing our respect for the natural environment because we are of this environment as much as we love to see ourselves as separate from it and able to affect the environment around us but we are affected by the environment as well so maybe reprioritizing and re-injecting respect into the fact that mangroves and and natural natural born plants here in florida that are a little bit um they're not they're not um palm trees per se <laughs> but they are designed and grow up to weather these storms and will will save us in the end is also a way to go well so cd and if jeff if you want to follow up uh, after cd responds you can but are floridians uh, actively in denial of pending natural disasters are are they also in denial about you know, more than just climate change. And to live in Florida, to mm-hmm. tolerate living in Florida, do you have to be in denial about, uh, you know, inevitable hurricanes and the inevitability of climate change? Ooh, ooh what a question. Um, I'm going to try to answer you in various pieces. And one of those pieces is reminding you how transient the population here is or how how much the rest of the nation um, comes to Florida as as a paradise, but Florida, Florida is being franchised. I mean, you you are you are being catered to with with how it is being marketed and how how uniform it is. Like we are, you know, um, paving paradise and and putting up parking lots to to paraphrase that famous song. Um, but. If you are native to Florida or you have lived here long enough to be challenged by the environment around you, you have a rugged respect for the world that is around you. Um, And I think that that's completely it's completely necessary to survive. On the one hand, you know, after hurricanes, we have this huge community sentiment of we will rebuild, we will come together. And it's supposed to be it's supposed to be hopeful. But it's, again, this marketed hope that that Florida can survive, which gives way, I think, to these kind of campy visions of Florida as like Florida, Florida man standing out in the in the rain with a with an American flag, you know, facing down a hurricane. But It's like, why? These happen all the time. 
let's let's learn how to live peacefully with them and and respect them and and you know my family we live we live much further inland uh we live on a like you said a, a 40 acre horse farm we are surrounded by swamps and and pine trees and when we um we had hurricane ivan to deal with in 2004 um almost directly and when that happened i mean we we laid on on um on uh, beds on bed mattresses in the hallway that we could fold over on top of us with riding helmets on in case the pine trees came down and some people will cut down all the trees around them as a way to protect their homes and that's you know also inevitably um you know cyclically failing because the trees also as as much as they are a threat to your your home they also are the buffer from the winds itself so it's a little bit of an imagistic uh explanation for you but there are people here that actively ignore climate crisis be in the form of natural disasters or climate change and then there are people here that are are so rooted that that they're struggling they're they're screaming for for people to pay attention because it's going to happen so jeff yeah. you, i was just going to say jeff do you feel that deniability is necessary to live in florida I, I don't know if I necessarily believe that. I mean, I, I I absolutely love Florida. I'm never leaving. I I think I you know especially North Florida inland, it's really an acceptable risk, especially because a lot of our natural systems in this particular area have not yet dis been dismantled. Although developers are doing their best to do so now, uh, so I guess that's the biggest frustration. Is here we have a lot of natural resistance and resilience inland. Um, and natural systems doing what they're supposed to be doing. And now we suddenly have the same developers in South Florida, you know, putting their eye on, on our urban forests and other things here that help us. Um, I would just say that, you know, also the state level governance, you know, over the last three governors, and even before that, sometimes with the Democrats, has been absolutely atrocious and not fact-based. I mean, you just cannot, you just cannot look at, at some of the, the, uh, the, the, the bills that have passed and, and see anything like any kind of wise management of resources. So you have to lay a lot of blame there, especially also then with the messaging. Um, and, 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 you know, it's it just simply that the policy has, has been, been failed policy. And, and I would also say that, you know, the problems that we have here with regard to these kinds of events and them getting worse, you know, it's not restricted to, to here. It's, it's up and down the Gulf Coast too. I mean, Texas, Louisiana, they're, they're, they're dealing with similar issues on, under different environments. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that's really my answer. You know, I, 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 <laughs> I mean, it was, it was really kind of revelatory to me when our arborist said, keep your pine trees because your pine trees are clustered close together. They, they form a kind of a circuit. And if you cut most of them down, you'll actually be at more risk for, for during hurricanes, you know? So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if we cut down more of our trees, we'd be at more risk from the wind tunnel in this ravine right here in the suburbs, it's Tallahassee. So, so there's all kinds of things where you just have to be, you have to be delicate and you have to be intricate and you have to understand the place that you live. Mm -hmm. CDU and Jeff also write that the modern human imagination that has shaped Florida has centered on profit or willfully misunderstood the uh, landscape by severely terraforming it in ways that weaken its own organic disaster response, including building unaffordable housing that favors affluent, largely white homeowners. Does building unaffordable housing that favors affluent, largely white homeowners weaken disaster response? Or would any housing for any group 
of people do the exact same thing? Mm. Uh, well, you're asking me, I think Jeff, that was, that was mainly, mainly your sentence. Um, but definitely to answer you, I'm going to go back to my previous answer, which is there is a way to build into or live into the environment around us that is sustainable. Um, what we were getting at with this article as well is, you know, also touching on people's ability to evacuate. Evacuation takes resources and then building right on the beach <laughs> takes a level of risk that, um, you know, consumed in resources as well. And that uh, if you have a home here that you that you winter in, um, you have an ability to spend the money to to winter here. It's your second home or or you know that it's a fragile home and that you are willing to take the financial risk of of rebuilding it. And and that does. I mean, that's a reality throughout our nation that that's going to benefit um, affluent, largely white homeowners. Well, I mean, now, what I would say too is just simply that the, the scale of this is based on the profit and mm -hmm. the fact that uh that they're selling the houses at like four hundred thousand dollars or more i mean they're taking out three thousand acres at a time mm -hmm. and uh you know i talked about this at length in this other article a current affairs article that cd was an advisor on the annihilation of florida um so you're simultaneously uh, adding to the fact that we don't have affordable housing and in many cases, developers getting out of it any which way they can, and then clear cutting to create homes for, for people who have a certain you know base income, and that affects all kinds of socioeconomic uh, factors as well. So I think overall, it's, it's a very harmful thing. It's not just the terraforming of the natural environment; it's a kind of a terraforming of the human the human psyche in Florida. But Jeff, also, oh, go um, ahead, CD. I was just going to say, I also want to point out um, for people unfamiliar to Florida or even Floridians too, is that the more we develop the, our coastline, the more the interior also will be affected. It's not it's not separate regions. And I think that's what we were trying to point out in our article as well. So, uh, CD, you also point out that, uh, you know, you're both, both you, CD and Jeff, you're both very critical of Governor DeSantis's response to the hurricane. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is is there any evidence, CD, let's start with you. Is there any evidence that would suggest that the Democratic Party would or could do a better job than DeSantis? To what degree can a governor actually have an impact and make it so the people are more safe when it comes to a pending natural disaster? That's a very fair question to ask. And my biggest answer is I'm... I'm willing to see what somebody else could do. Um, we had we had Governor Ron DeSantis through the pandemic, and there is a certain um, strongman attitude that he has to any natural disaster, which rests on the, you know, what's called the personal responsibility of the everyday Floridian, um, and that is something that I am exhausted by and ready to see change because. It doesn't really matter. I mean, ultimately, with so many of of our our national policies, it does not matter what you know, Republican, Independent, Democrat, but it, it matters how you care about the community in front of you. And what we see in Florida is just this lack of a lack of understanding or lack of care for the systems of people that make up our state. Um, and so Jeff, I think probably has a much more articulated answer for this. I come from the era of COVID reporting, so I have a lot more 
I have a different and a lot more personal perspective on the governor's leadership through that crisis. Uh, so I'll turn it over to Jeff to answer you more fully. No, I think that sums it up for me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, Sorry. it's just a, a putting it on the everyday Floridian to navigate. So it's, it's a, um, trying to become a symbol of striding forward in front of the crowds, especially in your pristine boots that you understand what's going on. But at the end of the day, there's something so uh, rewarding to just say, I don't know, let's all figure it out, as opposed to just trying to plunge right into doing the same thing over and over and over as if that's working for us. So, Jeff, uh, DeSantis is likely going to be a candidate for the Republican national nomination uh, for the presidency. Considering his response to both the pandemic and Hurricane Ian, what should we as Americans writ large expect from a DeSantis presidential administration? <laughs> yeah, I think um, really you have to think of Florida. If, if Florida was a, a country as opposed to a state, you would have all these international agencies and organizations issuing warnings about totalitarianism, totalitarianism and fascism and uh, lack of, uh, you know, rights for citizens and whatnot. And they'd be absolutely correct. So it, it's really alarming to think of him on the national stage. At the same time, there is such an inflexibility in him, such a stubbornness and such a, a thin skinnedness that I also think that there is a scenario in which he comes apart entirely on the national stage under scrutiny. Uh, but it's not good. You know, it's, 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 um, you know, and, and I, you know, I, when Jeb Bush was our governor, I respected him for a few things, including the fact that he understood that nature and tourism were intertwined. Mm -hmm. He did some things I didn't agree with, but he definitely did some things that were good for Florida. So I'm not coming out of a partisan place on this. I'm coming out of a, this person is an extremist and this is a bad situation. So I've got one last question for each of you. We have been speaking with C.D. Davidson Hires and Jeff Vandermeer, who co-wrote the Nation article, Is Florida Becoming a Failed State? Large parts of Florida should be mangrove thickets, prickly swampland, and unforgiving marshy wilderness. You can find out more about C.D. by going to her website, DavidsonHires.com, and following her on Twitter. You can find out more about Jeff at his website, Jeff Vandermeer, and you can find out more about uh, JeffVandermeer.com, and you can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Vandermeer. One last question. I've got one for each of you. And our final question, as we do with all of our guests, I promise, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So let's start with you, CD. You oh, ask, by all means. You oh, ask, do. Is, is Florida becoming a failed state? The question acquires more urgency in the wake of Hurricane Ian as DeSantis, with his strongman facade, tries to distract from the fragility of a Florida deprived of its natural defenses. But, CD, how can mm -hmm. you both be a successful strongman in getting voter support and putting in place policies that arguably make you your state a failed state? How can you both be popular in a failure? I think that to answer that, I'll direct you further into the article where we talk about the leisure domain of Florida, which is that we're building on things that do not exist. Um, I think another popular phrase is the emperor has no clothes. And so it's this um, popularization of an illusion 
that's very easy to buy into. You want to believe in paradise, but paradise comes with its own costs. And if you ignore that, you ignore it at your own peril. So, Jeff, what makes DeSantis popular both inside and outside Florida if he's such a failure? Uh, well, I mean, I think because uh, we are often engaged in looking at short-term, short-term gains, short-term rewards. And I also think that people do respond to somebody who seems to be definitive on a subject. Mm-hmm. The problem is if you're definitive on a subject because you're wrong every time, over time, you will become a failure. And so, uh, you know, a lot of these things are built on the backs of uh, bridge rights for workers, for example, in terms of our economic development. So, again, it comes down to hidden costs, and those hidden costs have not necessarily come due yet, um, but they will. They will in time. Thank you both so much for being on the show this week. This has been a spectacular conversation. The writing is great. People should check out your article at Nation Magazine. And Jeff was mentioning an article that CD advised on at Current Affairs. You should go check that out by just searching on Jeff's name as well. Thank you so much, both of you, for being on the air with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. This is great. Thank you for great questions. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye. (laughs) Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. If what you just heard about Florida and the argument of it being a failed state from CD and Jeff, if that made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, or at least Florida definitely is, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live this week on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support when you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon. Not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me never heard on air before and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. On last week's Patreon podcast here at This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. We often receive odd things in the mail, and we were recently sent the weirdest thing we've ever received, but we do not know how this single, simple envelope was sent to us. It has no sign of postage or when it was sent or where it was sent from, or when, for that matter, as the return address is the future, all in caps. We got an envelope from the future, And we have no idea how it was delivered to us. So, on Patreon last week, we opened that envelope in a very frightened state live during last week's Patreon podcast and revealed the contents to Patreon subscribers. But you can only hear that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also on Patreon last week, we featured an interview from 2009 with a guest who was also on the regular show last week, filmmaker Joe Winston. Back in 2009, Joe was uh, on the show to talk about his then-just-released documentary, What's the Matter with Kansas?, that is somewhat based on the seminal book by Thomas Frank of the same name. In fact, Tom appears in the movie and was on the phone with us 
13 years ago when we spoke with Joe live in studio about What's the Matter with Kansas. What's the Matter with Kansas is now available for free on Vimeo, so you can watch the movie and then listen to our interview with Joe and Tom, or listen to our interview and then watch the movie. Joe was on the regular show last week. If you were listening, you may remember him. He was on to talk about his new documentary, Punch Nine, for Harold Washington. Find out more about Joe's latest film at punch9movie.com. And I got a lot of emails from people and uh, comments on Facebook and uh, Twitter uh, from people who said that they went and saw the movie because they heard us talking about it on the radio show, and they absolutely loved it. But you can only find out what's in that envelope from the future and hear our conversation with Joe and Tom about what's the matter with Kansas by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, here in the U.S., we have an upcoming election on Tuesday, November 8th. Whether you are in the States or not, wherever you are, whenever your next election is, what do you fear as its worst possible outcome? Spectacular read, my friend. Spectacular. We have one answer. Oh, we only have one so far. And it's a conundrum. All right, let's hear it. (laughs) David Z answers, that the day after is November 9th. And, and, and I would take that as a attempt at being a comedy, a comedic answer. But after he finishes the sentence in parentheses saying, look it up. And so I looked up I November tried, 9th. And there's like a million historic events that happened on November 9th. And I asked him, you know, which I, one is I, it? Which one, What is to be more specific? And he hasn't replied. Yeah. So. And that's the only answer we have right now. When was JFK assassinated? Nope, it wasn't. Damn it. I thought that was one. I don't think it was. No, I don't think it was either. I think it's November 20-something. I can't remember now. So, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. So, Richard, who is our next guest here on This Is Hell? Yes, it was the 22nd. 22nd. I was going to say 23rd, and I didn't think that was right. Um, We have tomorrow... Brian Muir returns to This Is Hell to give us a preview of the upcoming presidential election in Brazil. Brian is an editor and contributor to Year of Lead. Year of Lead. Lead. <laughs> I was going to say I've that. said Year of Lead so many times. <laughs> year when, of Lead. Yeah. Washington, Wall Street, and the new imperialism in Brazil. Co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesor English News Program. From the South and co-host on Brazil 24-7. And a regular contributor here on This Is Hell, dating back to at least 2012 on All Things Brazil. Who else? Who's our final guest on Wednesday, we have Sudip Bhattachari. Look at that. Great. I practiced a lot. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about his article at hardcrackers.com. Socialism or suburbia? Sudip is a doctoral candidate in political science at Rutgers University. He is also a writer, organizer, and you can find his other work at outlets like Protein Magazine and Counterpunch. Also coming up later this week, we will have 
This week in Rotten History, we will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live again on Thursdays at 10 a.m. and is podcast shortly after the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. We will hear another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, who will be here again live in studio. And we'll wrap up this week the way we do every week by announcing the winner of this week's question from hell. And, uh, you know, then you'll win your choice. And the person who wins that will get their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Don't forget, every Wednesday evening from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., we hold This Is Hell office hours, which is our meet and greet, our weekly meet and greet. That's really a drink and think. It carries lounge, the bar downstairs from us right now. That's at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Again, from 6 to 10 p.m. every Wednesday night, this is Hell Office Hours. Drop by, and if you want a free book, I'll give you one. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing today's show. We told you so. This is Hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>